You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aaron Fishman, introducing one more book review episode to complete our off-season series. On March 1st, 1972, the Senate overwhelmingly passed Title IX, which sought to prohibit gender discrimination within educational programs and any other activities that received federal financial assistance, athletics included. The House of Representatives followed the Senate's lead a couple months later, and by June 23rd, President Richard Nixon signed the landmark bill into law. A little more than three years later, Melissa Isaacson entered high school in suburban Chicago, desperately wanting to make a sports team. The Illinois High School Association hadn't approved girls for interscholastic competition until the preceding winter. That fall, she and her peers became part of the very first Niles West fall basketball, junior varsity, and varsity teams, an empowering experience that would leave an indelible mark on the student-athletes' lives. By Melissa's senior season, Niles West had thrillingly won the Illinois state title. In state, A Team, A Triumph, A Transformation, Melissa's third book, she vividly chronicles the journey that she and her teammates still have not forgotten. In mid-May, on our episode discussing the Last Dance docuseries, Melissa just briefly discussed this book. On today's show, she makes her triumphant return to finish what she started, and wow, was it a delight. Before we play the interview, I'd be remiss not to mention that two episodes ago, author Paul Nepper became on the NBA Beat's 100th unique guest. Okay, that's it. Now that the shout-out to Paul has been broadcast, here's my book discussion with Melissa Isaacson. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. I'm really glad to have you. You hinted at the end of our last interview seven months ago now believe it or not (laughs) that you'd love to do a part two and we always wanted to do a part two now we're doing it let's dive in as my brother talked to you it was too brief so that's why we're doing this but as he talked with you on the show last time we both really enjoyed your book it's very powerful it has a lot of important messages for aspiring athletes, parents, humans, period. But um, I'll I'll stop the praise and just start going. Thank you. Thank you. No, <laughs> I totally appreciate it. Yeah. So just the team uniform, I think, represents such a, an important theme. It's a physical manifestation to me of the progress being made in girls and women's sports. And in the epilogue, you wrote that the uniform was, quote, always the most tangible barrier to sports equality. Mm. How would you characterize the role that the changing uniform plays in your narrative? 
Yeah, I mean, for me personally, but I'm, I would imagine for a lot of girls growing up in the 60s and 70s who, who kind of, you know, maybe thought that playing team sports was a possibility and, and uh, was just elusive at that point. It was always, you know, the like I said, the most tangible thing was seeing boys in these cool uniforms. To me, I always was jealous of that. You know, the idea that you would have this this team identity, but also that you're representing something, you know, and um, it made you look like, like any kid, you know, you want to look like the pros, you want to look like the real athletes. And so all of that told us more than anything, I think that no, 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 you might be able to play sports, but you can't look like a real athlete, you know, you can't, you know, and then they started giving us these uniforms uh, in junior high, which mind you, I was thrilled at anything, but we got the little pennies, you know, that you wear for like flag football or whatever. Um, that was our uniforms, you know, with, with masking tape as numbers. And even that was something, right? And then yeah. in softball in the early to mid 70s was my first real team uniform. And they were a picture of a girl. The, the logo looked like a girl from the 50s with this very curly bob, if you can picture it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, the hat pushed back, like super feminine. Um, and I thought, uh, like, yay, but no, you know. <laughs> and it was a very, very curly cue lettering, you know, that was just very girly. And to me, girly meant not the real thing. You know, it was like not the real thing. It wasn't that I want to look – necessarily like the boys, but the boys just represented um, being accepted. And then, you know, you talk about high school and we had to share and all girls teams in the early days, even college teams in the early to mid seventies were sharing uniforms amongst all their different teams. So imagine, you know, Oh, you know, it wasn't yours take home or maybe you had to take home and wash it, but then the volleyball players had to wear it the next day or track or gymnastics, you know, whatever. So you had these like kind of itchy, scratchy uniforms. It didn't have a name on it. It didn't have the school name. It just had this teeny tiny number. And again, we were all like thrilled with it, but we had to share. And we had to share, you know, maybe four little icky warm-up suits amongst everyone. I don't know who even got to wear them. After a while, no one wanted to <laughs> for obvious reasons. Right. So it, the team uniform did always represent to me acceptance um, you know, equality, the year that we got our actual school name on our uniforms, I could remember it very well because the thought of representing our school, the thought that that you have this sort of responsibility, even though maybe nobody even cared when, you know, you're playing a game, you know, did everybody care? But that, that what we did represented our school and that we were wearing this across our chests. I mean, that was the biggest thing I could have hoped for. Like that was just it for me. And I, I don't think that I am, you know, thought of it in the ways I'm describing it now. It just in the same way that showing up on the scoreboard on cardboard strips and the big gym scoreboard meant that we were finally arrived. That's what uniforms meant to me. Yeah. Definitely. As you just alluded to, some of those changes must have seemed monumental at the time and, and others of them were more subtle. It also depends on which generation you're from and the time um, when you're looking back. So young people nowadays are uh, clamoring for more 
rapid change in a lot of segments of our society that have to do with equality and justice. This is getting a little bit deeper and yeah. and beyond the book itself, but how do you conceive of, of balancing demands for more radical change versus just uh, more incremental progress? I think that we've had our days of incremental progress. I don't think there's anything wrong with demanding change. Um, you know, compliance with Title IX from all schools, which is rare nowadays. Uh, you know, equal pay for professional athletes. You know, all of that stuff. Uh, why shouldn't we demand that? You know, to have a general manager in sports now, which we finally do in professional sports with Kim Ng. I mean, that stuff that it doesn't do us any good really to demand, but we should certainly be a little impatient. And in the same ways that getting a uniform was a huge step and playing in the boys gym was a huge step and, and we were patient and we did take each victory, you know, as a big, the big thing that it was. Um, I don't know that patience is something that we should have. I mean, we, you know, not to get all political, but like, you know, we've been waiting for the ERA to pass for some time now. And like patience hasn't done us any good. And I don't even think anyone's fighting for it anymore. So yeah, I, I would not, you know, blame anybody for being, for being impatient, wanting to rush things along. But if you mean that people should appreciate, and maybe this generation of young people should appreciate the small things, then absolutely, you know, and I say that a lot of times when I talk to teams and especially when I talk to the Niles West team, which is my high school, uh, you know, the modern day team last year, I was talking a lot to various schools and I spoke to them, of course. And I would say, you know, just stand in your gym. It, it, if you get a chance and close your eyes and imagine what it would feel like to not be allowed to play in that gym, to not have, you know, the uniforms you have, to not uh, play on a regulation court. You know, all those things, the little things that we celebrated, and, and to them it's unthinkable, but I think it's worth stopping for a second and reflecting on on how how much the people before them, you know, really, really kind of achieved. I think it's a really interesting question to ponder. That's why I asked you, but I, I completely agree. Young people really need to appreciate those who came before them who made what they're able to enjoy possible, but it's not enough. And I think we need to keep fighting for better change. And a quick side note, I think it's really cool and interesting that between our two interviews was the Kim Ng hiring at, yeah. at the Mar Marlins. So yeah. there's progress, even though it seems slow sometimes. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting back more specifically to the book, you lay out the genesis of it in the prologue, but if you don't mind, I'd love for you to walk me through that. Yeah, you know, I had, I always kind of knew, I guess, that we had a special story. I mean, I, I knew it from high school. I didn't envision writing a book, certainly, and I uh, didn't know at that time I'd be a professional writer. And I just, there was a lot I, I couldn't have envisioned, but I think we all knew that it was special. I think we all knew that what we were experiencing was, was something that we would never forget. And so when I did become a writer, I think, I think in some form it was always sort of in the back of my mind. And then the 25th anniversary came around of our state championship. And 
I wrote a column for the Chicago Tribune. I was a columnist for, for the Tribune at the time. And it was about all the things, you know, as I dug in a little bit uh, that week for the column, it was about all the things I did, we didn't know 25 years earlier uh, about our coach and about our principal. And, and so that week was really incredible because I wrote this column. They were going to celebrate the 25th anniversary at a girls game that weekend at our school. And, you know, on this, not a side note at all, but in my personal life, my father was in hospice care at the last stages of Alzheimer's. My mother also had Alzheimer's. So there was a lot going on. Um, my best friend on the team or one of my good friends on the team and the star of the team, if you will, Connie Erickson, um, who I hadn't talked to in you know probably 20 years, saw the column online and she said, are you going to this reunion? She lived in North Carolina. And I said, of yeah, I think so. And she said, well, if you're going, I'm going, I'm going to fly in. So she did, which was incredible. And I, you know, was really excited for it. But then that day, I ended up stopping at my parents' house. And, you know, all this was going on. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? And he had just uh, really sunk into sort of a final, final stage. And the hospice care worker said, it's okay, you know. Uh, you know, he seems to be really fighting it, and, and you know, he, you need to give him permission to go. Sometimes people in the last stages of life <clears throat> need to be given permission to die, and it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously a really profound moment. And you know, I said goodbye to my father. I told him it was okay. You know, I talked to my mom alone in this room, and then I kind of looked around. I was like, what am I doing going to this reunion now at the school? And all this is happening at my parents' house. And I started talking to my mother and had, like, for the first time in a long time, a conversation that I thought, uh, as conversation, I was the one talking, but I thought she heard me, and she hadn't in a long time. And I thought for a moment there was maybe a moment of lucidity where she could hear me. And so I go to this reunion and, and it's super emotional. And I hadn't seen people in 25 years, a lot of them, the parents, especially, they were looking around for my parents because they all knew each other, but hadn't seen each other in a long time. They're asking for my parents. I'm like, well, so then I had to tell them about my parents. And then that was, you know, hard. And we ended up watching videos of the games later. And there's a moment where my parents appear on screen cheering in the stands and everybody had by that time knew what was going on with them. So it was very emotional. The whole team was like, Oh my God, you know, Missy and, you know, kind of a freeze frame of them cheering and we all were tearful. And and then I walked out into this bitterly, bitterly cold, cold, cold night back to the car with my friend Connie. And she said, miss, you got to tell our story. And I, you know, it just hit me um, that, I did. And, and, you know, it wasn't mine to tell. It was our story to tell, but I was going to be the one to have to tell it. Uh, and it was going to be, you know, quite an undertaking and responsibility. But I knew at that point that I had to tell the story. So later it became a very natural jumping off point of the book. And that's what I did. Wow. You tell that story really powerfully. I was getting a little emotional while you were talking about it. I want to go back to that for a second. but. Yeah. First, I just want to correct something I said. I think I said that you laid it out really nicely in the prologue. I meant epilogue. But now back to the prologue, just so powerful, both as a standalone section. Then also, once I read the rest of the book, I understood why you included that. Um, I, I know that to a large extent, it inspired 
you telling the story, but also to what extent, if any, did you wrestle with including those private elements of your life and your parents' story in the book that would become public? Um, that's a great question because it wasn't going to be part of the story. Originally, after I wrote the column, it, it had nothing about our private lives, my private life. It was all about the struggles that, uh, that we overcame to, to get on that court and to get a team and to, to win the state championship and all that stuff. Uh, the, the things that our principal had to, uh, endure to get varsity sports in the state because he was one of the state high school representatives um, in our coach and stuff like that. So it, it had a lot of stuff in the column. Um, and a former classmate, high school classmate, had become a movie producer and he wanted to turn it into uh, he, he did book packaging where he took books and turned them into movies. And he did a lot of young adult books like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I don't know if that rings a bell to anybody. I've heard of it. I um, never saw it. And it was, yeah, it was many, like, he wrote a lot of you know, Pretty Little Liars and things like that with young mm-hmm. women, young girls. So he envisioned it as a basketball book. And that was fine with me. It, I never had written narrative nonfiction. I didn't really know what I was doing frankly, but it was very much of a basketball story. And it sat around and he tried to work with me and it was clearly we weren't on the same page. I didn't really know what he was talking about when he talked about scene and things like that. <laughs> and so um, it sat dormant for you know several years where he lost interest. And frankly, I lost interest. I was just too sort of depressed to look at it because I put a lot of work and reporting into it. And then it, I, it just wasn't what it should be. In subsequent 15 years, my parents both passed away. I wrote a Tribune um, magazine article about their battle with Alzheimer's. Uh, I got a lot of, lot of feedback from that. And it, and as I told friends, every time I would see certain friends uh, over the years that I would ask me about the book and I'd say, oh, I don't know. And it became apparent though, the, the ones that would really ask me about it with more detail that my parents' story really was a part of this basketball story and that it did need to be resurrected and that there was a good story in there. And so that's slowly but surely how it became what it became, which was once I told the world as, you know, if you will, not to be overly dramatic, um, the story of my parents in this Tribune magazine article and got the feedback that I got, which was staggering to me. Uh, I still hear about it. And it was in 2008 that, you know, it was okay. I did feel very uncomfortable telling their story in that article. Once I did, I felt like they absolutely belonged in the book and that the story was all about them and all about our families because all of us were escaping something seemingly in those days. And what we were looking for was this unbelievable place for us to, to be together. And, uh, I don't want to say it was therapeutic, but, but in a way, in a larger way, it was. Um, and and it, it gave us what sports has been given boys for years and years and years. Um, you know, this, this team atmosphere, this unity, this place where were so many lessons to be learned that girls just didn't have access to before that. Um, sacrificing for the good of the team and, you know, being a good teammate, f- figuring out how to be a leader, you know, pushing yourself past what you thought were your limits and striving for goal together. And, and, uh, all that stuff, um, was instrumental in 
in giving us that escape that we all needed. We all had different things going on in our homes from from domestic abuse to alcoholism to, to illness to um, kids just looking desperately for self-esteem. And I think once I figured that out, it was there for me the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I put it together in my head, it was very, very clear and obvious what you know direction the book should go. That's amazing. Digging more behind the scenes, the researching and reporting aspects of it had to have been more challenging doing it in 2007 or 2015, for instance, than it would have been decades earlier, say in the 80s. Right. Uh, What were the processes like for doing each of those? And how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I I joke, you know, when the book came out last year, kind of joked with my teammates that it's a good thing that we I wasn't writing it then because my memory are doing the bulk of the reporting then because my memory and their memories were not nearly as good. Um, But we had it, it was really a compilation of a lot of things. In those days, people did, kids did scrapbooks. We had amazing scrapbooks that parents put together with every conceivable, not just articles in those days, but you'd, you'd have strands of the net and you'd have programs and you'd have, you know, I had cassette recordings that of the, of me and my teammates singing and cheering, um, big Uh, giant cassettes. Yeah. I, I wrote to, or I communicated with my friend Shirley who graduated a year before we won the state championship and is integral to the story. Her whole freshman year of college, we traded back and forth this cassette recording. Instead of writing to each other, we would talk to each other and mail the cassette back and forth. And, you know, that was just invaluable to me. I could hear my voice. I could hear the way we talked, which was terrific. Even if I had written a diary, I wouldn't have been able to tell, you know, with that clarity, um, what we sounded like. And then there's always those people that have phenomenal memories for different things. Um, you know, you probably remember various goofy stories from when you're a kid that maybe your brother doesn't, and he was there, but he remembers other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was the case with us. I might remember certain details that they were like, oh, my God, that's right, or really? And then they remembered other things. So between all of us, uh, and then, you know, Becky Schnell was kind of, you know, one of the main characters in the story, and she was a freshman when I was a senior and we won the title. Uh, and I joke with her, like, you're four years younger, so thank God you were around because you had a better, you have a better memory or that much younger. But she really did provide a lot of things, um, had a lot of different memories. And then there were coaches – uh, Gene Earl was our coach senior year, the coach of our state championship team. And he was one of these guys who could tell you like in the second quarter, you know, you were, we were up, you know, 2018 and Connie had an 18 footer and you're like, really? And then you'd go back and, and the other beauty of it and just luxury at that time we didn't appreciate was that every paper covered us like crazy. The Chicago Tribune had, an enormous sports section and they would cover every single big 10 game home and away football, basketball, and they covered high schools like crazy. And so did the sun times and so did all the suburban Chicago papers. So there was an enormous amount of coverage. So I was able to go back and check and, and a lot of, you know, everything he said was always right. I had film, I had video, I had different coaches. So between all these little bits and pieces, I was able to put it together. I'm so grateful that you had all these resources and I'm sure all the readers are too, because 
it helped you, it enabled you to tell the story in such a just illuminating way. I think sometimes people of my generation take the internet for granted and assume that it was always there for, for researching purposes. And you can go back to social media posts from a few years before and stuff. But um, without having the internet, I'm glad that you're able to have all those resources. The epilogue, I think probably could have been a book all by itself. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult sometimes to get through it just because of all the unrelenting trauma it seemed like Peggy experienced throughout her life but powerful too and inspiring I want to say she deserves so much credit for bravely sharing her story and making herself so vulnerable if you don't mind I'd love to get an update on how her and her son Clint are doing since the book was published yeah thank you for asking um Clint is on the autism spectrum. He's 28 now. And she's, she's a terrific mother. They live in California. Um, and about a year and a half ago, he was diagnosed with stage four testicular cancer. And of course, you know, it was as shocking as you can imagine it would be. Um, and basically, she was sent home by the small hospital that she went to take him home to die. That's what she was told. She, they thought she, he had no more than a few weeks to live. And Peggy on her own as a single parent, you know, would not take that answer and uh, found an amazing doctor at USC, uh, their cancer center there. And he did, I don't want to say experimental surgery, but groundbreaking surgery. Uh, he's gone about a year and a half without eating anything by mouth. Uh, was one of the um, many side effects of many, many surgeries. He had he had all kinds of complications, but he kept pulling through and just gained strength. And she just wrote me again the other day that he had a grilled cheese sandwich. It was literally the first thing he's eaten in almost two years. It was wow. unbelievable. I almost started bawling reading the email. And he's looking good. He's cancer-free. And it's truly a miracle. And her doctors at USC, his doctors are using his case in conferences around the world, talking about him because of uh, the groundbreaking surgery they did on him. So she is still a hero. She's still incredibly brave. And um, yeah, she just, and she'll still tell you to this day that the things that we experience and the lessons she learned from our coaches and from our experience is what gave her strength to endure the things that she's enduring to this day at almost 60 years old. It's incredible. That's really heartwarming to hear. Yeah. Talking a little bit about Arlene Mulder. Yeah. You argue in the book how instrumental she was in her team's, in your team's state title, even though she wasn't the coach anymore. Right. You apologized to her in 2004, concern that she was never properly thanked for all her contributions to the team or, or that she may have felt unappreciated or underappreciated in the intervening years before you had that conversation with her, how much had you considered the level of credit that she got for the state title? I mean, as kids, we absolutely didn't really, you know, you just are so self obsessed and absorbed. Um, That's, you know, you know, it's not, 
I mean, I kind of stopped blaming myself as a kid a, a long time ago because she never did. And, um, you know, we had the task at hand. And so we never thought about that we should try to include her or try to thank her or whatever. And, and it was her idea to stay away from us senior year because she wanted the new coach to bond with us. And then, and then we won and she got no credit, no thank you, no nothing while the new coach uh, got you know, hallways and streets and, and awards named after him and, and was in the Hall of Fame and all these things. And years later, when I started writing the book, you know, 25 years later, I think is the first time when it really did hit me as I started putting it together that not only did we not know a lot about the stuff that she, and it took the reporting in the book to find out how unselfish she really was and how much a part of our victory she really was. Um, so as I learned that, I think that's when it obviously when it really hit me that she really never did get thanked. And and then, you know, I would do things like interview her colleagues, uh, one in particular who started crying, you know, 25 years later, um, remembering this moment where she was in the gym office, girls PE office, and hearing still another announcement after we won the state championship about an award that our male coach had won and, you know, he was put in the hall of fame, something. And she just broke down and cried her friend because she knew that Arlene had not gotten a stitch of credit. And um, so, you know, interviewing them and, and just it all coming to me coming to realize that this is a woman that was really the heroine of the book without question. Yeah. It's clear how impactful she was in the team's success. And Kind of along those lines, just about evolving that we all do as we get older and experience more of life. Near the very end of the book, you identified three areas in which you and your teammates evolved. I want to read the passage because I really liked it before getting into my question. Sure. I'm struck by and feel bad about some of the characterizations in these pages. Our irrational fear of traveling to Waukegan East our narrow-mindedness about the perceived connection among girls, sports, and homosexuality, our impatience with women officials. But that's how it was, and so that's how it is in the book. And I can only hope we are not judged now for some of those feelings. From my perspective, you explained that really well, and I think it would hurt the authenticity of the book if you sugarcoated it or whitewashed any of that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, too, the book's full of human beings who learn and evolve despite some of those cringy things. And I think those were, that was just a very small part of the book. But despite that, was it easy to include all the negatives knowing that the story had to be told honestly, or, or uh, did you battle that at all? I, I, I did battle it. I did. Um, it wasn't a question of should I cover it up? I guess it was a question of um, portraying it as accurately and fairly, you know, in a way that was, because I don't think I think we did as well as could be expected at the time. I don't think we were racist per se in our fears of playing at a black, predominantly black school that we would be roughed up. I don't think that came from a place of hating black people. I think that we just didn't know better. Maybe that's a real cop out. Maybe that's what racism is. You know. Um, and so I think though, even in the moment we realized how unfair it was 
And so I struggled with just making sure that I was in the moment. And that was, uh, that was tough for the whole book for me to be teenage Missy and not grown up, you know, Melissa. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Yeah, because that's part of, you know, the narrative nonfiction lessons that I learned uh, that I, I had to tell the story as I remembered it then, as, you know, as I lived it then. And so, and so it, that part was hard, you know, do I, is, am I sugarcoating? Like you said. Um, and so I, so I tried to just tell it, I just tried to factually tell it and not, and not say, but, you know, but we weren't racist or, but that's just all we knew. That's me talking now. You know, um, I tried to just as like a reporter would, um, you know, very much uh, just the facts, you know, just the facts and no real opinion. And so that's how I got around feeling like, uh, oh, this is cringy, like you said, or embarrassing or whatever it was. It was more like any other story I would ever write that would just follow the facts and, and do the reporting, except that it involved me. <laughs> and so... Yeah. You know, so so that became a little more complicated, but I I am glad I did it. And in fact, I had a friend who yelled at me for apologizing at the end. He's like, "Why are you apologizing? You know, like why are you saying yeah. that's just the way it was?" kind of thing. So and, yeah. and I can understand that perspective even though I appreciated it. I I thought it showed good perspective, but Joshua asked you last time and you gave a terrific answer about how this was different for you as a journalist of a certain generation, um, just being the story and not yeah. writing about some other subject. And you talked about how uncomfortable and different and awkward that was at first, but ultimately how rewarding the experience was. Um, but I didn't think of, of that other element that you're also writing from your own perspective as a teenager and we change so much over the course of our lifetimes and, and uh, it must've been so difficult to navigate, but I think you did it really well. I, I wish I tell my students, um, you know, now going through this just unprecedented, incredible time that we're living through that they really, really, really need to keep a journal of some sort. And, and yes, fine blog and, and whatever and get things published and all that. But how I wish I would have had a diary, you know, and I think I did as a little kid. We all girls had diaries with the little locks on them and stuff. I But, you know, they got thrown away. Um, but not as a teenager. I didn't do that. And that's would have been really valuable. Um, but I could get into my head more than I thought. I could get into my head. And you'd be surprised because you like you said, you do change a tremendous amount, but in other ways you don't. And once you have the language, once, once you hear your voice and you hear some of the language and maybe some of your friends fill in a few gaps, um, some parts weren't as hard as, as I thought they'd be. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. This is James Hamm of NBC Sports California, NBC Sports Bay Area, on the NBA beat. This one is um, a, a little bit more about broad takeaways, but the whole book to me makes a compelling case for the power that sports competition can have on kids and young adults. If you just had only a brief amount of time to convince a new parent, what would be your elevator pitch on... Um, whether or not to sign their kids up for a team. This is in a non-pandemic world. You know, 
I say this, and my daughter was not um, a kid who was on teams for very long. She she played soccer, was like five and six and seven year old maybe, you know, and played a little softball, um, you know, rec league stuff. But she was in other team settings, and so and so was my my son played sports, but he was also and still is a musician, and so his place in the orchestra and, and in the band is very much the same. So I would encourage parents uh, not necessarily to push their kid into sports if they don't have an interest in sports, but certainly a team setting, because I think there are se- several common you know themes that go through that. And until you work with others, until you figure out how to subjugate your own you know, your own goals for the good of the team, for the good of the group. You learn to listen in a, in an orchestra. You learn to uh, just being a good teammate in so many ways is, is an incredible, uh, incredible lesson to learn. And I think that's why it's no coincidence. And I may have said this last time that if you look at the most successful business women now, a huge majority of them played team sports uh, when they were kids. And if they hadn't played team sports, they were in other team things, you know? Um, so I think all those lessons that boys for years and years and years learned, and that's how you became a successful man in business. Uh, and we just didn't get, now we're getting. And so yeah. to, to not, to not have your daughter exposed to that, to learn how to negotiate to learn how to strategize. I mean, that's big time skills that that little boys learn from the very mm. first time they're pushed up to T-ball. Um, yeah. so that's, you know, that's absolutely um, to figure out if you're a leader or follower and being a follower, how to follow well is not a bad thing. Um, not everybody is a leader. And so maybe you try to figure that out and you find out at a young age, you maybe don't have the greatest leadership skills. Maybe you work on it. Or you find out you're a real natural leader, and that's something, again, you carry through your life. But how many girls are taught leadership skills as little girls? Not many. Um, but now they are. You know, they weren't then, but now they are. Yeah. Earlier in the conversation, you referenced the staggering feedback that you got on including your parents' story. And I'm sure you've gotten terrific feedback on the story in general. You also included a reading group guide in the back of the book. And I'm sure a lot of teachers are using it um, in, in their curriculum. What have you heard that's made you feel particularly happier or fulfilled from people who have read and or taught the book? It's really cool that you brought that up, and I didn't even tell you to. Um, but this high school that my kids went to, which is not the high school that I went to, uh, they, you know, read it, and you know, many of the kids have read it, and teachers, to various teachers, and uh, one of the English teachers came to me just last week, actually, and said he's trying to get the book introduced into the freshman curriculum, which would be incredible. Uh, yeah. even if it's temporarily, cause they had one book, I can't remember and probably shouldn't say it anyway, whose uh, author was not, um, let's just say the me too movement, um, exposed some things about this particular author. And so, <laughs> and so, um, there was like a movement afoot to get that book thrown out of the freshman, you know, required reading list. 
Uh, and so they're talking about mine and that's so great. And one, it's not so much being included. I mean, that's very, very cool. But one thing another teacher said to me that stuck with me is that very seldom are boys or teenage boys asked to read about girl heroes and girl protagonists. Um, books about girls are not generally put in the hands of boys. And so while I don't in any way think this is a girl's book, and I don't, it's probably not one that a lot of boys would naturally gravitate to unless they're told to. And then I think they would find a lot of common themes and, and some inspiring themes to, to it, to our story. So um, that's the greatest thing that I, that I heard. Um, and then anytime a young person, either a teenager or young adult uh, and a guy, you know, like you guys um, relate to it, in any way and enjoy it. I mean, that's even better. Uh, I'm so thrilled because, you know, I think probably most authors would not want to put their books into a narrow aisle and be like, this is it. It's just for this audience or that audience. Um, I'm no different. I'd like to think that my book appeals to men, to different ages and, you know, both genders and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's great when I hear that. And, and I'm always, you know, pleasantly not surprised, but just really, really happy when, um, because I knew middle-aged women would like it if they read it. You know, I'm pretty, pretty reasonably sure that women my age would find something enjoyable most or many would. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But, but when a, a man reads at my age or, a, you know, a guy your age or a you know, teenage girl, um, then I'm really, really thrilled because it just shows that like all the years uh, that separate us. It does. Some things don't change and high school doesn't change a great deal. You yeah. know, some of the things I think you can relate to forever. Yeah. I personally can attest to being able to relate to it a lot. It wasn't ever a struggle uh, being a 30, 31 year old male. It, it, it worked really well, but then again, I understand what you're saying that when you're trying to get your book published or trying to market it, you kind of have to talk about what you think the target audience would be right. or where you think the best likely reader would come from. Yeah. And it's a cliche and people don't like hearing everyone will be able to relate. To right. it. No, they like, don't. They it, don't. It can work yeah. for everyone. It's a just relatable human themes or, or no, being yeah. discussed. Because it's going to end up on in the bookstore shelves. It's going to end up in a category probably. And so was this a sports book? Well, Oh, I don't know. You know, do I want it as a sports book? Yeah. Um, one sort of background story is that I had this great endorsement from Steve Kerr and you know, here's this book about, you know, this triumphant book about this group of girls. The picture on the front is about girls. I've got a Billie Jean King endorsement blurb, and I've got Steve Kerr, and they wanted Billie Jean King's name out there on the cover. And I fought really hard to get Steve Kerr. And um, I'm really glad that they listened to me because I had nothing to do with the marketing. And, you know, it wasn't my say. It was certainly not my call. But they listened and they ended up with Steve Kerr. And I just felt like he was a voice that I really, really loved to representing this book because he is a man was one of them. Um, but also because he's such a sensitive, um, such an open minded and, and thoughtful man, too, you know. So um, and and such a voice for for basketball. So he brought so many different 
different things to it that kind of relates to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for doing this. I have one final question for you, if you don't mind. Absolutely. In more quiet, reflective moments, when this part of your life comes to mind, what are the thoughts that are most likely to dominate? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I, you know, I think it really is kind of the things that you thought were huge when you're a teenager that you thought you'd never forget and that would just loomed so large. And then maybe you get a little older and you're a little bit more cynical, but when you're as old as I am, you know, 40 years later, um, you really do remember the, you know, the time you got to visit the governor, you know, after we won in the parade and the top of fire trucks through the, the rain in the suburbs uh, where we all lived and uh, the appearance we made on the Ray Rayner show, which was a childhood, you know, staple for kids in Chicago and, um, and the holding up of the trophy in the middle of assembly hall in a court that we could never, ever, ever envision in our lives being allowed to stand on much less play on Um, those memories that we said, we'll never forget this as long as we live you know, huddled up on that on that court in assembly hall before that first game. I mean, I remember it vividly and all just looking at each other and we didn't say one word. We just looked at each other and smiled. And it was like, damn, you know, this is this is really un- just unbelievable. Who would who would have ever thought? And we're going to remember this the rest of our lives. And on top of the fire truck, we are going to remember this the rest of our lives. You know what? We did. I did. I do. I mean, this isn't the end of my life, but I'm going to be 60 next year and I can remember it vividly. And so, um, and so it's cool to, to know that, you know, if we had lost what I remember you know, things like, no, but you know, we didn't. And I'd remember other things, but all those little moments that, that uh, kind of sprinkled through the book really do still in the quiet moments, you do smile and remember the scoreboard and, and you know, you're, the first time you saw your name and, and all those little things. You definitely remember those. I'm sure you're never going to forget any of it. No. Hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for helping me revisit this. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for letting me revisit. I really, truly appreciate it. Eric.